And I suggested that we invite Professor Van Allen mm -hmm. on Engineers Day, believe it or not, uh -huh. to come to the university and tell us about uh, the discovery of the radiation belts. Uh -huh. So he so happened that he stopped my by my bench right. as I was working, and uh -huh. he says, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Oh, I'm sir, I'm uh, I'm building an ion chamber." He says, "What is?" And he said, uh, "Have you thought about grad school?" A year later, I found myself uh, as a first-year graduate student at the University of Iowa, and that's how my sort of more direct involvement in the space program uh, became possible. Episode 99, Professor Stamatios Kremigis, exploring the solar system with Voyager. Professor Stamatios Kremigis is perhaps Greece's most experienced space scientist. He started studying physics at the University of Minnesota in the same month that Sputnik was launched. A chance meeting with James Van Allen led him to build instruments for Mariner 3 and 4, eventually becoming a principal investigator for the charged particle instrument on the Voyager program, which was initially known as Mariner Jupiter Saturn 77 program. In this episode, recorded in Athens in July 2022, he speaks about his remarkable career, guided in large part by a chance meeting with his mentor, physicist James Van Allen. It is released today to mark his 84th birthday on September the 10th, tomorrow. Professor Stamitios Grimikis, first of all, can I say it's been a wonderful but very hectic experience of the week of COSPA here. I need to congratulate you and all the local organizing committee. It's been a terrific time, a very intense time, very deep and heavy science. Well done and congratulations to all of you. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Singh. I, uh very pleased that uh, things seem to work well because one never knows no matter how much uh, planning you do whether everyone will do their own thing and do it well and so that the whole can work and so far I've heard good comments from many of the participants and of course uh, people like you so we're very happy that uh, uh, this day came uh, in the sense that uh, today is the last day of the meeting mm -hmm. and uh, as for myself I'm still standing and, and, uh, <laughs> but I am looking forward to uh, having a, a lot of sleep next week and the week after when I go on vacation. <laughs> Terrific. Now you have an extraordinary uh, set of experiences throughout your life in probably um, uh, active involvement in many of the space missions. What I want to do for the next uh, 25 minutes or so is really just talk about your experiences from the early days and your recollections of some of the people that uh, you worked with. And there have been really some people uh, who, uh, whose names are associated with the early days of space travel and space exploration. Let me start off with um, uh, 1957. 
the launch of Sputnik. Um, you were a teenager then. Is that what motivated you to get into space science? Uh, no, I happened to be uh, a freshman at the University of Minnesota my first year mm -hmm. uh, at the Institute of Science and Technology of the University. And uh, when Sputnik was launched, mm -hmm. uh, a month after I started school, oh. <laughs> and all of us were, right. all the students were absolutely amazed and, uh, and uh, curious, mm -hmm. to, uh, to say the least, about this uh, round sphere that was going at, over the United States at uh, 900 kilometers mm -hmm. altitude, and was going beep, beep, <laughs> beep, and, uh, and nobody could do anything about that. And, and of course, at that time, it was at the height of the Cold War, mm -hmm. where a lot of people were actually building uh, shelters, underground bomb shelters, to survive a right. nuclear attack, which could happen presumably at any time between the United States and the Soviet Union. So you already decided to study science when Sputnik uh, launched? Yeah, I had decided to actually, I signed up at the School of Electrical Engineering. Uh, however, within about a year, I had the good luck of uh, taking um, my course in atomic and nuclear physics. I had an excellent teacher who uh, was so, um, uh, I would say, inspiring that uh -huh. uh, I decided to switch to physics immediately. And uh, ever since uh, I, uh, I was there. And then uh, within uh, a year, I was um, able to get a job with a group uh, under Professor Winkler of the university who uh, had a campaign uh, to fly instrumented balloons mm -hmm. at high altitude right. so we, he could study the so-called solar cosmic rays mm -hmm. because at that time we knew the sun was active mm -hmm. but the observations from the ground were not sufficient to know anything more than what is in the optical wavelengths mm -hmm. and I met many very nice and helpful people there, good teachers, including Prattful Bravsar, who was a postdoc with Professor Winkler, mm -hmm. and he was working with the balloon program. Right, yes. Who later, I believe, became a, a head of the space agency in India. Yeah, he was there for the launch of the very first rocket from India into space. Let me just take you back to uh, Sputnik. It, just like the International Space Station, it's in low Earth orbit, Sputnik is visible, was visible, just before sunrise and just after sunset. Right. Did you see it? Actually, I can't say that I did. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, being a student, you didn't have access <laughs> to uh, yeah. facilities, or yeah. at that time, the information was very mm -hmm. sparse. Uh, yeah. You could only get it from newspapers after the fact. Uh, yeah. There was no internet, yeah. so, so yeah. I didn't. Yeah. Uh, but we'd, uh, we'd, we heard, we had heard the, uh, the recordings of the beep yeah. as, it, as it was going from uh, uh, the uh, TV channels at the time, 
but we had a lot of curiosity, and of course, uh, you know, the American first American satellite in, uh, was launched uh, on January 30th of '58. Mm -hmm. That's four months later, and it so happened that the professor Van Allen, who was a professor at the University of Iowa, mm -hmm. only 300 miles south of Minneapolis. Right. Uh, was the person who had instrumented right. the first and second and third American right. satellites. Mm -hmm. And as uh, is uh, by now well known, uh, he was able to identify the presence of uh, high altitude radiation mm -hmm. above the Earth. And uh, when the announcement came in 1959, uh, it was dubbed the Van Allen Belts by the press. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, he himself never called them. Really? <laughs> and uh, so I was with the student uh, uh, council at the <laughs> Institute of Technology, and I suggested that we invite Professor Van Allen mm -hmm on Engineers' Day, believe it or not, uh -huh. to come to the university and tell us about uh, the discovery of the radiation belts. Uh -huh. And he was kind enough to accept. Right. Uh, he came to Minneapolis, gave his talk, and then Professor Winkler took him to uh, the laboratories mm -hmm to show him around about the equipment that was being built for balloons, as mm -hmm. I mentioned, and I, my specialty at the time was to build uh, something called an ion chamber, which right. was a, a detector that presumably could also uh, detect all kinds of radiations, uh, from x-rays to electrons to protons. Mm -hmm. So he so happened that he stopped my by my bench right. as I was working, uh -huh. and he says, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Oh, I'm sir, I'm uh, I'm building an ion chamber." He says, "What is? How does that work?" Right. And so, being a a second year student in physics, I I tried to explain to him as mm -hmm. best I could. Uh, I think I was a third year student in physics at the time, and, and he said, uh, have you thought about grad school, graduate school? And I said, yes, I, I said, I have, but I don't have any money, so I think I'm going to try to get a job after I graduate and see if I can make some money so that I can save it to go to grad school. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, listen, he says, why don't you apply to the University of Iowa? Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I said, well, sir, if you say so, I will. And right. uh, uh, so, uh, a year later, I found myself uh, as a first-year graduate student at the University of Iowa. And that's how my sort of more direct involvement in the space program uh, became possible. That's an incredible story. Let me, so you ended up in grad school because of James Van Allen's yes. conversation. Just a step before that, what took you from Greece, where you had been a school student, studied at school, to the USA in the first place? Well, you know, all kinds of coincidences. Yeah. My father was an immigrant in the United States, uh -huh. uh, and uh, when he retired and came back to Greece, 
and, and he didn't last very long, it turned out, because his health was compromised, but he had left a little money for me to go to the States. Ah, and he said, listen, uh, you have to understand that the Athens of antiquity is now the United States. So I would like you to go there and go to the university. Where to go? It so happens that my, uh, my mother's sister and brother were both immigrants to the United States in Minneapolis. So there was no question as to where I would go. And that's how I ended up at the University of Minnesota, and, and then, of course, Iowa, as we were saying before. So you ended up in uh, University of Iowa. Did uh, uh, James Van Allen, was he your teacher at some stage? Oh, yeah. He was my mentor, and uh, I did uh, my master's thesis there, uh -huh. and within a year and a half, after I passed my master's exams, he called me to his office and he said, hey, how would you like to be a co-investigator on our instrument on Mariner 3 and 4? Now, Mariner 3 and 4 were the first American or anybody else's missions to Mars. And I said, uh, what do I have to do? He said, oh, um, I would like you to build a detector system that can s differentiate between protons and electrons. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, uh, it, it was significant because the uh, radiation detectors, by and large, uh -huh. were the kind of uh, instruments like Geiger counters, which would count X-rays and gamma rays and electrons and protons, and by and large didn't know what kind of radiation that was. So I said, I'm not sure I know how to do that. <laughs> he says, well, don't worry, I'll help you. And uh, so, uh, and uh, I said, then when is the spacecraft being launched? He said, oh, in about a year and a half. So, um, very any, anyone yeah. who uh, is working today on a mission will say, that must be crazy, yeah. because uh, it takes five years to plan a mission, and five to ten years to implement it, and get the data back, and so on. That's not the way things worked at the beginning of the space program, uh, at least not in the United States. Uh, you could design an instrument as a graduate student and do your thesis from the results. So, uh, anyway, uh, it was a tough uh, assignment, but um, somehow I was able to, to succeed and, uh, and we had an instrument that went up on Mariner 3, which never got to Mars, mm -hmm. it was a failure, right. and Mariner 4, which did, and, and of course the objective is to see if there were Van Allen belts at Mars. Oh, okay. And lo and behold, we got there and there was nothing there. <laughs> and, and that scientific uh, data, that's valuable. The fact that there was nothing there didn't mean that uh, there was Of course, a, of course. Uh, we we uh, <laughs> learned uh, that not every planet has a radiation yeah, belt. Yeah. Uh, not every planet even has necessarily mm -hmm. a magnetic field. Mm. 
and turned out that Mars had a very weak magnetic field from ancient magnetic field that was kind of preserved on the ground but really didn't extend very far into space. So you couldn't have uh -huh. radiation belts. Yeah. And so you, your career, you really were there at the outset. The very first Very much. I, that's why I said I was lucky. Uh, and, uh, but we did discover things on the way, mind uh -huh. you. Uh, for example, uh, uh, with the detectors that we had, uh, it was possible to look for radiations on the way to, to Mars. Mm -hmm. And I was in Pasadena at the Jet Proportion Laboratory one day watching the data and I saw that there was something strange happening in the response of the detectors and uh, uh, I called Professor Van Allen and I said, uh, you know, uh, I think we are seeing electrons from the sun, but no protons. That was the discovery of energetic electrons emitted in solar eruptions. Uh, and, uh, by the end of the year, we wrote a paper and published it about the discovery of wow. energetic <coughs> electrons from solar flares. Had nothing to do with Mars, <laughs> but it was a terrific discovery nevertheless. And that was exactly the question that uh, <coughs> James Van Allen had asked you when you were at your grad school project. And can you tell the difference between yeah. the protons and the protons? <laughs> Obviously, that was on his mind. His mind yes. <laughs> and so the, the reason um, um, why you have to go into space to detect these particles is because they never make it to the surface of the Earth. Of course. You mentioned high-altitude balloon experiments before um, <laughs> you, got your, you ventured into space. Were you involved in the balloon experiments as well? Well, that's what I was building one of the sensors that we were launching on the balloon experiments. Right. Yes. yes. And, and we students were uh, essentially doing the campaign of, of going and launching the balloons from a north airport north of Minneapolis called right. Anoka. And, we, and, and at that time, there were observatories around the world that uh, would be watching the sun, mm -hmm. and when they saw an eruption, they would send it a telegram <laughs> and, and we would get a telegram you know at uh, two in the morning mm -hmm. that there's a solar eruption and we got out of bed and run to the to the laboratory picked up our equipment and, right. and the balloon and run out to the airport and try to launch it as quickly as possible so we could perhaps catch the eruption and we were able to, to discover x-rays. Right. X-rays are not prevented by the Earth's magnetic field of getting to the top of the atmosphere. You see, that's right. easy, or, right. or gamma rays, but right. electrons and protons couldn't possibly right. get in unless they had huge energies right. because the magnetic field of Earth would prevent them from ever getting close enough. And, and just a, a question about the equipment you're using. So these balloons, were they able to transmit the data when they were launched, or did you have to collect the instruments after the balloon had come back down to the Earth? Actually, we had the transmitter on the balloons, uh -huh. and we could actually receive data, but we were also recording data. 
because after um, a certain uh, amount of time, um, when the battery was exhausted, we could cut off the balloon. Uh -huh. the, but with a little parachute, the payload would land in some farm in North Dakota, for example, and a note to whoever found it ah. to send it back to us to Minneapolis, to the university. And we recovered a lot of this uh, equipment and used it again. And did many of the, did you lose any in the process? Did oh, we did, yeah. yes, of course. I mean, you know, something may well have ended up in some inaccessible place or the bottom of a river or whatever. <laughs> and uh, we would never recover it. But we did recover a fair amount mm. because people were very kind and they said, oh, from the university, yeah, we'll send it back. So uh, you mentioned the name of uh, Professor uh, Prafel Bavsa. Uh, yes. Now he, I spoke to him about his experiments in balloons. You worked with him quite a lot? Well, he was part of the same group. Right. So uh, I saw him practically every day. Uh -huh. I was working uh, as a student at the laboratory. And, mm -hmm. uh, was very energetic and very articulate. And right. uh, I learned a lot of things from him, mm -hmm. I have to say. And the, another uh, member of uh, uh, the Indian Space Research Organization and the former chairman, sadly lost him a few years ago, was Professor U. R. Rao. He had an interest in cosmic rays. Did you spend much time with him? Uh, yes, indeed, because uh, I also did my thesis on uh, uh, solar cosmic rays, they were called, but uh, we don't call them that anymore. Energetic particles from the sun, because cosmic rays are coming from outside the galaxy to the solar system. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, he was a member of a group in Texas uh -huh. uh, at a university there and in Dallas. And they had a detector on, on a spacecraft called Pioneer. Mm -hmm. And that spacecraft uh, uh, detected uh, protons uh, uh, from the sun. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and we had also detectors on other spacecraft as well uh, from Iowa. And, uh, we were comparing data a lot of the time, and they had. A, uh, he was working with a group uh, that was, I think at the time was included Ken McCracken of, uh, from uh, Australia, uh -huh. and uh, and eventually, you know, McCracken went to. Um, back to Australia and became head of CSIRO and uh, and URO and came back to India, went back to India. So yes, we have known each other for many years and I remember the last time I saw him was uh, when I was at the COSPA meeting in uh, Mysore, I, I think. Oh, yes. Uh, and uh, we had dinner together. I mean, uh, he's a very nice gentleman, wonderful person. And so uh, I had uh, known him, and I 
consulted with him about the program uh, when I was uh, the head of the space uh, mm -hmm. the laboratory at uh, Johns Hopkins University over the years. And he worked in, just like you did in many different uh, teams, different places in the US. Um, did you ever go in to, to visit India and uh, the Indian space? Well, uh, only in the context of meetings. Uh, and uh, I had been to Hyderabad and to Mysore. Right. And I'll just mention two other names from those times. They were a little bit older than you, so you may not remember them. Um, there was uh, <coughs> uh, Theodore von Kármán who has a unique place in space history. Did you ever meet or work with him? No, I never met him because he was kind of um, a, a previous generation, yeah. if you like, but I was very happy in, uh, I think, 2017, the International Academy of, of Astronautics mm -hmm. gave me the Von, von Karman Award, which is their highest uh, award that they had. And that's just one of many awards that I know that oh, your work yeah. has attracted over the years. Um, Robert Millikan was another uh, individual who did a lot of work. Again, you're, you're mentioning some names that uh, were uh, you know, of a previous, previous generation, generation. Yeah. and mm -hmm. I know all of them, uh, uh -huh. but uh, by the time I got into uh, physics and uh, right. at the professional level, so to speak, <laughs> they had all gone. Yeah. And uh, just one other name, which you may not know very well because he was not really in your field, but Frank Molina worked quite a long Frank time. Frank Molina was um, associated, I thought, with the, the group in JPL. Dallas at one yeah. time, and uh -huh. then um, see at the University of California, San Diego, or and that place. I met him in the, uh, in the activities of the International Academy of Astronautics when I was elected a member, mm -hmm. and uh, right. I remember him, uh, but he was, as you say, not in my field, so yeah. we had more of a social rather than a professional right. interaction, except in the context of the Academy. So, the one person I do want to speak to you about, and I know you know him well, is Ed Stone. Ed Stone, and you, and many others, worked on, I think, um, perhaps for me, for my generation, a pivotal program called Voyager. Voyager 1 and 2 were launched 45 years ago. At what stage did you get involved in Voyager, and when did you meet Ed Stone? Well, actually, I had met uh, Ed Stone before Voyager. He had got his PhD at the University of Chicago, mm -hmm. and uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we had then a series of meetings, which was um, called the Midwest Cosmic Ray Conference, mm -hmm. and we would gather from universities in the vicinity, but also some from the East Coast. And I had organized in 1968 uh, the Midwest Council in Conference at the University of Iowa, just mm -hmm. before I left to go to Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And Ed Stone came there to give a paper. Right. He had already gotten his PhD some years back, and, uh, and he had moved on to Caltech. Uh, so I knew Ed. Right. 
uh, he was generally we were generally in the same field mm -hmm. and then in 1970s when NASA announced his intention to do what they called the Mariner Jupiter Saturn program which was a spacecraft that would go to Jupiter and Saturn and investigate those and uh, I was on the uh, mission definition oh. committee uh -huh. uh, Ed was my recollection is he was not a member of the committee, mm -hmm. but then once the program was approved by NASA, mm -hmm. uh, uh, he was appointed by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory as project scientist. Right. So, and I was lucky to have been selected as a principal investigator for the low energy charge particle instrument. Right. So that's how, that's when we started working together sort of continuously right. uh, since uh, I think 1972 oh, when see. we began to, to build the instruments and have regular meetings right. and um, so uh, you said past 45 years yeah. more like 50, 50 years, years now you know, since yes. we started because <laughs> now you know you get to work on a program long before it gets launched yeah, uh, yeah like, uh, of course uh, and of course it was in the process that we changed the name once we finished the spacecraft a few days before we launched them, we changed the name from Mariner Jupiter Saturn 77 <laughs> to Voyager. Ah. So that's how the name came about. Right. And of course, uh, under the leadership of, uh, with the leadership of Ed Stone, mm -hmm. we always kept in mind that if this, if this spacecraft were to last more than four years, we could go farther out to explore the outer solar system and perhaps someday get to the termination shock of the solar wind and the so-called heliopause and get out into the galaxy. So you had considered this possibility prior to launch? Yes, we did because uh, we knew that we could do it dynamically yes. with the gravity assist mm -hmm. from the planets right. uh, and uh, and the only issue was that at that time mm -hmm. nobody had built the spacecraft that would last four years let alone 45 <laughs> uh, so so it was kind of a dream uh, but then once we got past Saturn uh -huh. And then we directed Voyager 2 to encounter Uranus and Neptune. Mm -hmm. We got there in 89, right. and the spacecraft still were working very well. Uh, we decided to request permission from NASA uh -huh. to approve a mission called the Voyager Interstellar Mission, because uh -huh. that was going to be our goal from then on. Uh -huh. Uh, but uh, please note, it was 1989 after we passed mm. Neptune, right. and we said, by golly, you know, sooner or later we're going to cross a boundary uh, into the galaxy. Uh -huh. Little did we know that it was going to be 23 years <laughs> before we ever saw the boundary, yeah. which uh, came 
in 2012 for Voyager 1 and in 2018 for Voyager 2. So, so all of this was, you know, uncharted waters. You couldn't know any of them. Exactly, and the, um, it was powered by a, a radioisotope power source. So although it's getting further away from the sun, the power would be decreasing, but the idea that it could still remain in contact with the Earth, I suppose that re required some uh, development at this end of low energy um, amplifiers so that you can detect fainter uh, lower power signals from far away. So the technology uh, has been growing as its power source and it's been decreasing at a distance it's been increasing so it's remarkable that it is now beyond the heliosphere and still in contact are Voyager 1 and 2 in contact with the Earth regularly? Oh it happens every day every day yeah uh, but we need a big antenna as you pointed out uh, you know there were a lot of improvements on the ground mm -hmm. in uh, major amplifiers and such uh, new technology that, that decrease drastically the noise of the system mm -hmm. so that we could uh, actually track and uh, receive data from Voyager mm -hmm. after all these years. So it was a combination that uh, we learned how to fly the spacecraft uh, and make uh, some improvements if you like mm. but but the big change was on the ground the ability to track and uh, receive data from Voyager uh, at these distances and as I was pointing out the other day yesterday I guess we have 160 bits per second <laughs> from the interstellar medium at a distance of 23.4 billion kilometers and and it's not a problem yeah. if we if we had enough power on the spacecraft to keep it alive and keep the instruments uh, working then we would go for probably another 20 years but unfortunately as you point that out uh, we had these radioisotope thermoelectric generators which utilize the heat from radioactive plutonium 238 mm -hmm. to generate uh, electricity. So we're now, uh, instead of 260 watts, we're now at 230. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, the mission was never designed to last that long, and uh, we have to make all kinds of adjustments to the instruments. Uh, in my instrument in particular we have a little stepper motor uh -huh. that rotates every 192 seconds to scan the whole sphere right. and, uh, and it's a very important measurement to us and it led to a lot of discoveries uh, because uh, on a spacecraft that's always pointing at Earth uh -huh. you don't get to look in other directions unless you do it yourself in your right. own instrument. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that stepper motor was designed to last us through Saturn right. uh, for four years. Right. And uh, we only tested it for, I think, 500,000 steps. Right. And uh, so now it's past 8 million steps wow. and it's still working. <laughs> the most amazing part, however, is that 
two years ago when uh, we had to decrease, uh, turn off essentially the supplemental heater, mm -hmm. the temperature of this device went from minus 10 to minus 60. Mm -hmm. And it's still stepping. Right. I was absolutely astounded by that. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, needless to say we never tested it for that uh, temperature. And, uh, the fact that it's still working, I don't know what attributed to. <laughs> the, the Voyager team. It's not many, uh, as many left, of course, now. It is 50 years ago uh, that the program first started. Do you keep in touch with uh, many other members of the team, including Ed Stone? Yes, of course. We still have um, the so-called science steering group meetings mm -hmm. twice a year. Right. Uh, needless to say, the last two years, because of COVID, they were uh, Zoom-type meetings, mm -hmm. remote. But uh, yes, we are in regular communications. Uh, mind you, some of the members have passed away. And uh, so, uh, but as I was saying yesterday in the press conference, uh, we have younger people who we're bringing on. Uh, but there are special problems. Uh, for example, when uh, we needed to to see what the, uh, uh, what the effects on the instrument would be at these temperatures. Mm -hmm. We had to go back and to look at some of the initial circuit diagrams and so on. And everybody today says, oh, well, it's a problem, you know, you just um, get to the right file and bring it up. And mm -hmm. No, at that time, all the files were paper. And, uh, and the circuit diagrams were stored someplace, uh -huh. and some of them have been destroyed. Oh, so, <clears throat> so we had a very hard time just getting the documentation, mm -hmm. let alone the people who did some of the designs of the detailed, uh, the detailed electronics mm -hmm. uh, to, to tell us what would happen if we did this or if we did that. Yeah. And uh, so my principal, principal value to the project is that I'm still alive and I remember some things. <laughs> I mean, it is an, an incredibly um, eventful life experience you have. Just a question about, uh, to bring it back up to date, um, in Greece uh, this science and space science is flourishing and now we have uh, the Hellenic Space Agency established. Um, what impact uh, do you think Greece is playing its part in the uh, world of science and particularly space age as, as it should now? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think Greece was very slow as a country to really get into the space program per se. Uh -huh. uh, that's not to say that Greek scientists right. uh, didn't get into the space program because as uh, uh, everyone probably knows there is a big Greek diaspora uh -huh. uh, in Europe, the United States, um, uh, mostly those, those parts of the world, mm -hmm. but many of them uh, are actually quite uh, prominent in their own fields mm -hmm. and uh, so 
So Greek scientists and technologists and yeah. engineers have contributed a lot and are working in the space program, but not in Greece. So the the job for the Hellenic Space Agency, Hellenic Space Center, is to put together a coherent enough program to attract the kind of people that they need to make rapid progress. Mm -hmm. And they're at that and they're trying, mm -hmm. but they have a long ways to go. There is some small companies that are working in the space uh, mm -hmm. program that uh, have specialties that are um, workable and competitive and they get some programs from the European Union mostly. So there is some level of, of um, infrastructure mm -hmm. that, that could be taken advantage of, but it's um, it has to mature, and that's the job of the leadership of the agency. It's only two years old, basically. And, uh, <laughs> and, and if I can ask you, and this is perhaps difficult to assess at this point, what impact do you think this last week has been to encourage um, the, the Greek government, the Greek space center, as you say, um, I know from the contribution you've been making, showcasing Greece and its capacity to be a more active player in space. Um, I got the feeling that uh, as a result of this week's and your contribution and many others of course here in Athens, that um, it's been a bit of an impetus, there's a bit more momentum and inertia behind the space activity. Well that Greece. remains to be seen. Okay. Uh, uh, but. Uh, I, I hope that um, it is indeed it has ha it is having an impact. Um, among other things, uh, the prime minister uh, asked me to um, see if we could get the heads of space agencies to his office, mm -hmm. and he received us on Monday. Okay. And, uh, and of course, he's a very uh, modern man and well educated, and he was asking us all kinds of questions. Uh, about programs right. where uh, James Webb is a big deal these days, but, but about other things as well. So if nothing else in his sort of uh, uh, screen, mm -hmm. uh, there is something called space. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, the fact that uh, many of the countries of the world came to Greece to uh -huh. have their meeting and discuss uh, science and technology. I hope it's having the right kind of impact, but most importantly uh -huh. about the young generation. That's what I was hoping to, um, to be uh, an impact and it is indeed having an impact both in the social media and in the press. And so many of the uh, young people uh, see this as not beyond the reach of the small country like Greece mm -hmm. and, and, and they see that uh, either through the uh, local uh, technological establishment or mm -hmm. through the diaspora they can really have a future in this business right. and uh, I keep telling them when I give a public lecture that uh, you know we have to make the future not wait for it to come to us. Mm. And 
I have noticed that strain in just about everything you've been saying. So I, in conclusion, I assume that you are hopeful and optimistic that soon either uh, in it, on its own or through the European Space Agency or other partners, Greece will play a more active role with uh, launchers and building their own large satellites and perhaps even Greek astronauts in the years to come. Well, I, I, your words were hopeful and optimistic. Right. Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but it's not going to be done without hard work yeah. and determination and a plan yeah. and those are the things that, um, that are yet to be demonstrated. Well, um, I think the fact that you worked on Voyager and it has been perhaps one of the most um, impressive and iconic accomplishments, technical accomplishments in my generation, I'm sure uh, from your efforts, Greece will be achieving unlikely things in the future uh, with as uh, so much daring as you have demonstrated throughout your career. Professor Stamatios Kremigis, Thank you very much indeed. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much for inviting me to, to this discussion.